have not yet met, my name is Nick, um, and I have the awesome privilege alongside my wife, Sky and our amazing servant team each week to do this little thing we call Collected Young Adults. We started almost a year ago. We're almost one years old. That's amazing. And uh, ever since then, yeah, you can put your hands together for that. That's pretty sweet. We're stoked on it. And uh, each week, this is what we do. We just spend time in worship, just singing some songs, um, and then we spend time in the Word, seeing how what was written so long ago and can seem so perplexed applies to what it means to just be human in the 21st century, and then we just spend time together. And I love this community of people so much because we just love Jesus and we just want to love people. That's our goal. We don't really care for celebrities. We don't really care for how we look. We just care that Jesus' name is known and that the city of Albuquerque is changed by his grace and that we have impact and influence in our environment. And so uh, before we jump in tonight, I'm going to read some things. We're going to talk about some things or I'm going to talk. Maybe you'll talk. I don't know. And then uh, we're going to just kick it. But before we jump in tonight... I just, in preparation for our conversation, I was doing some research and I was realizing something, that everything has a review. You can review anything. That if you want to go on Yelp and write a review for tonight, this church, you could do it. I don't know why you would, but you could. If you wanted to go to a traffic stoplight, you could type it in on Google and write a review for that traffic stoplight. Hopefully it's not in Bernalillo because it'd get a one star, right? They've been doing traffic in Bernalillo for like 12 years. I don't understand why. Anyone ever face this? Anyone ever be in a group of friends and um, you're in a new place, you're maybe in a new city, or you really just don't know what you want? And so you do this classic thing where you say, hey, what's good around here? Somebody looks something up. And then you have that one friend who really is like, guys, I really don't care. We can go anywhere. And then you have another friend who says the same thing, but they really do care. And they just want everyone to read their mind. And then you have one friend who says, oh, I really can't eat at Chipotle or Chick-fil-A or Whataburger or McDonald's. You know, it all hurts my stomach, you know. And, and there's this one person in the group and nobody else cares. Everyone's like, I'm just hungry. Let's go eat something. But there's this one person in the group who has to go somewhere specific. So what do you do? You look at what's reviewed well, right? You look at what's five stars. You look at what's four stars. I mean, you'll take three stars at this point. It's Albuquerque. You can take what you got to get around here. But in researching this and understanding this idea of reviewing, um, I, I found a new hobby for myself, actually. I found that I really like to read weird reviews. Anyone with me? Anyone ever just, yeah, yeah, you guys get it, okay? I'm not that crazy. I love reading just reviews on Amazon. I was looking at mattresses this week because I got to get a new one. I was like, what are people saying? What are people thinking? Half these people are paid to say this anyway, so it really doesn't matter. But upon this week of looking at reviews, I was looking uh, locally at Albuquerque, and I realized Albuquerque, we love to review two kinds of places. Don't ask me why, but we do. These two places are McDonald's and Circle K. I could not tell you why. We love to review gas stations and McDonald's. I don't know why anyone would take the time of their day to write an essay on why Circle K service is great, but hey, more power to you. So in order to share in my suffering of this talent of just researching reviews, I want to read a few to you guys, okay? So we have a few to show you tonight. This first one is a local Circle K. These are real Yelp reviews. They're going to be up. It says this, thank you. That old lady is no longer there. Oh my goodness. I can finally enjoy going to the Circle K again. She never let me buy cigarettes because my ID was vertical. 
They, they missed the E, right? I'm 20, but I'm so glad she's gone. She gave it three stars for such a bad experience. This next one is for McDonald's. This next one's for McDonald's. We haven't been able to eat the food lately. The dining area isn't open. Four stars. So strange. And then I just kept going, you guys. I couldn't stop myself. So I said, what else is out there? So I went onto Amazon, and I just started looking. I started looking on Amazon. There's this one where this person has a financial crisis. He has a financial crisis and asks for a refund. Because I'm having a financial crisis, I can't afford. Please refund me. 30 people found this helpful. Then we have one more. This one is the strangest. It's about toothpaste. We could pull it up. It's about toothpaste. This tube of toothpaste was the most worthwhile purchase I have ever made. It was so great that my son ate the entire tube in one sitting. 100% would buy again, maybe even in bulk, so that he can eat his three meals a day and grow big and strong. Five stars, so good. Reviews are everywhere. You can review anything. And believe it or not, uh, you can do this research on your own. People even review prisons. I don't know why. There's Yelp reviews on prisons across the country. There's Yelp reviews for everything. There's Yelp reviews on every single thing. We throw it back to this slide. But have you ever felt this way, like as a person? Like, it's one thing to read an Amazon review. It's one thing to read criticism from somebody else online. But have you ever felt like you yourself are being reviewed? Like you yourself are at the receiving end of bad criticism in your life? That no matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, no matter what the circumstances are, you can't stop getting one stars from people. People can't give you a break. It seems like day after day after day, the criticism never stops. What do you do in the midst of that? Even a step further, as a follower of Jesus, what do you do when you face criticism? What do you do when you're facing circumstances in your life that if people only knew what I went through, they'd understand? But it doesn't stop the criticism. It doesn't change the circumstances. How do you navigate through that? Well, last week we spoke about Nehemiah. We've been going through this series, Hunting Giants, and each week we're talking about a Bible character, and we're talking about how they were courageous, what made sense for them, and how we could apply it to our own context and our own lives. And this week, I really felt prompted in the midst of this question of, in your, when you're in a circumstance that can't change, when you're in a way of life, when you're in a season of your life that you're facing criticism, but you still feel called to something, but you're still in the circumstance that's not going to change, what do you do in the midst of that? What do you do when you're working the part-time job, when you're going to school endlessly, but it's not even what you want to do yet? How do you work within those circumstances even though you know you're called to something else? What do you do when you're in New Mexico and for some reason you feel like God brought you out here? You moved all the way to this place from who knows where to who knows where and you don't know why and you wish your circumstances would change. You wish criticism would be altered, but it doesn't. What do you, how do you pursue your calling in the midst of that? How do you pursue what God has called you to? Well, I believe the character for tonight that is so applicable to this conversation, this idea, is this woman by the name of Esther. This woman by the name of Esther. If you haven't been around the Bible whatsoever, that's all good. Let me introduce Esther to you in about five seconds, because if we read the entire book, it'd take up the whole night. Here's the book of Esther summed up. Do you guys remember last week we talked about the Jews of Israel being taken into captivity by Babylon? Do you remember that? Yeah? Yeah? Do you remember it? 
Yeah, okay. So the Jews are taken into captivity by Babylon and then taken in 70 years later by this kingdom by the name of Persia. Okay, can you say Persia? Persia. Kind of like rolls off the tongue, you know? Persia. So some Jews went back. We talked about Nehemiah and Ezra and how they went back to Jerusalem from Persia, but some other Jews stayed back. And the book of Esther, in that context, that some Jews are staying in the kingdom of Persia. Some are staying in this actual capital city. So long story short, the king of Persia, he's psychotic. We're going to learn that very quickly. But he pretty much doesn't like his queen. Her name is Queen Vashti. And he pretty much tells her, hey, come hang out with all of us and show how beautiful you are to all our guests. Because get this, historians talk about how Persians would, as a culture, would for 150 days straight just drink and eat and celebrate just their wealth. Could you imagine that? Like just for 150 days, just eating Chick-fil-A. I could get used to that. This is what Persian kings would do. And so this guy by the name of Xerxes, he has a different name, but we'll call him Xerxes tonight. He has multiple different names, but Xerxes is easy for me to say, so I'm gonna roll with it, okay? He calls in his queen, right? And whack when you could say like, oh, you're my queen, you're my king, like literally his queen. He says, hey, show everyone how beautiful you are. She says, no, I'm a strong, independent woman. I don't need to come into this room and show everybody my stuff. And then he deposes her. He says, okay, you're out of here. And this is very common in ancient history. Most likely queens like this would get stoned to death or murdered by the king. Very common. They could do whatever they want. So he gets rid of his queen, and he needs to go look for a new queen. So what do you do? Well, you hold a beauty pageant, of course. It's like ancient The Bachelor, okay? And my wife makes fun of me each week that I talk about The Bachelor. I just can't get over this concept. If you don't know what The Bachelor is, maybe don't watch it. Maybe just do the Wikipedia read. But it's like this ancient version of The Bachelor. This king holds this citywide beauty pageant, and it's not as romantic as The Bachelor. It's pretty much, if I like the way you look, I'm going to choose you, and that's it. You have no say in the matter. And Esther gets chosen by this king, this, this Jewish woman by the name of Esther. So she gets chosen, and believe it or not, uh, historians also speculate Esther was 14, and the king was 41. It's kind of creepy, a little bit. So she gets chosen by this king for literally no reason besides he thinks she's beautiful and that's it. So don't think Prince Harry, Meghan Markle, you know, it's not this romantic narrative. It's more so against her will, she has to become this guy's queen. And then that is where our story is for tonight. And we're going to learn that despite the circumstances Esther is in, God uses her. Despite the circumstances being less than ideal, and I think we, a a lot in church, like history, can romanticize the book of Esther, like, oh, it's so romantic, she falls in love with him, when we really don't have much basis for that. It's more so she's held against her will to become this guy's wife among like 300 other women, okay? And then that's the narrative. It's hard to imagine that Esther isn't coming into this narrative, coming into this story with maybe her own dreams, That maybe she wanted to find her own husband. Maybe she wanted to be a part of a much different life. But for some reason, the circumstances she's given is much different than the expectations she's living in. And so if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Esther, chapter 2. If you need to look in the table of contents, it's okay. It's a really small book. And it's literally kind of in the middle of the Old Testament or near the middle, near the front. So we're going to be in chapter two. I've caught you up on kind of what's going on. It's a lot of politics. If you don't remember all that, it's okay. Just know this king, he's like an alcoholic sociopath pushover. And Queen Esther, she's awesome. She's great. And that God wants to use her in the midst of this moment. It says this, verse one. 
Later, when King Xerxes fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal tents proposed, let search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Jump down to verse 8. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven male female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Let's pray before we chat tonight. Sound good? Jesus, thank you for just this group of young adults. Thank you for these individuals. Thank you for those of us in this room who are just struggling with doubt. Thank you for those of us in this room who don't know why we're here tonight. Thank you for those of us in this room who have been brought by a friend or feel far from you, Lord. I pray that you just draw near to those of us in this room that feel those ways. That, Lord, we may understand and come to know you deeper and just grow in love with you. And I pray for my friends in this room who don't know you and maybe want nothing to do with you, that they, their heart just may be touched by you tonight. So, Lord, I pray that Everything I say tonight is just from you, that it's nothing of my own opinion, that, Lord, talking about your word and your scripture, it's just what you want to communicate to us. Praise in Jesus' name. So on this topic of talking about what do you do in circumstances when they're less than ideal, what do you do when you're called to something, but it's not where you're at yet, I want to title this talk, if you're taking notes, How God Likes to Use the Unlikely how God likes to use the unlikely. And I want to examine Esther's life through jumping around the book a little bit and look at her life and apply how in the midst of what she went through, it can make sense for us in different ways. And so jumping in, we, we just read in verse two about her predicament. She's chosen by this king. She has no say in the matter. It's this or getting stoned to death. And I guess she just chose to be with the king. And so she ends up in this circumstance where she becomes the unlikely candidate, the unlikely candidate. That's going to be our first note we can take from Esther tonight. When I say the unlikely candidate, I don't mean in the sense of how she's viewed by the world or how she's viewed by the king. Because the king really doesn't care about much else than the way this woman looks, obviously. He thinks she's likely. But I, but I mean unlikely in the way that so often God will use people who are unlikely. So often God will put people in positions, God will put people in places that are the least likely to be there. I think of this classic phrase, he does not call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. I love that phrase because it summarizes so much of what it means to be a part of God's will. So let me lay it out for you. Why is Esther an unlikely candidate? Well, first, she's Jewish. She's in this minority group that is not favored by the Persian Empire. They're nice to the Jews, but they're in captivity. 
She's in a group that is highly disliked. If you just read the Old Testament, you'll learn. The Jews, as God's people, are so special because when you read the Old Testament, it's so cool. You read things like the Wall of Jericho. Anyone remember that story? Show a raise of hands. Everybody knows the story. You walk around the wall seven times, blow the trumpet, you know, sing whatever. And so often we read that story and we think, man, that was like so brave of them. They're just like these warriors charging up. They didn't have to use their weapons. They marched. But when you actually read the context of that story, like the army of Israel was just a bunch of farmers with like plowshares and pickaxes and shovels going against like iron chariots and iron weaponry. Like they were not qualified to do this. And then we jump to the book of Esther that she is this woman who is not favored by her city. She's not the most popular person in town. She's also from a orphan background. We'll learn about her uncle who raised her. His name's Mordecai. He pretty much, or her cousin, he pretty much is her father. And we can speculate that Esther's an orphan. She doesn't come from a family of significance. Doesn't make sense for a queen to not come from a family of significance. And then she's also from a poor background. It's a given at this point. She's an orphan. She's a part of this group that has no power or prestige in her environment. And still yet, she's chosen for this position. And it makes no sense. And I want to tell you tonight, the calling you have over your life, I don't know what it is. The circumstances you're facing, I don't know how hard they are. But God wants to use you in the midst of where you're at. God wants to take you in whatever season you find yourself in. He doesn't want you to wait to gain a title. He doesn't want you to wait to gain a position. He doesn't want, you don't need like a minimum amount of like Christian credits to like graduate to the next class of being used by God. That God desires to use the unlikely. He desires to use those who make no sense to make change. God likes to do this thing where he gets people who have the lowest credentials, he gets people who have the least likelihood of succeeding, succeeding and using them a part of his will. It's kind of how he likes to show off a little bit. And I think so much in our celebrity-focused culture, we're so obsessed with who people are, their status. My wife was at Los Palos the other day with her mom, and they are talking about how they saw the guy from Stranger Things, the lead dude, I don't even know his name, but how everyone was like freaking out and like walking over his table and doing that thing. You know when you're like filming somebody, and you're like, oh, I'm just on my phone, I'm taking a selfie. It's just so funny to me that so often, We flip out when people are a big deal. We flip out when they have status, when they have wealth, when they have fame. God's not like that. God is not likely to use people unless they're unlikely. And Christianity has had this reputation for a very long time of getting the most least likely, the most down and out, the lowest of the bracket people to be a part of what God wants to accomplish. This reputation has actually permeated throughout time, believe it or not. And even we can find as far back as the second century, right? That's like double digits time, right? That's not even like the 2000s yet. Okay, it's a long time ago. We find this actual philosopher who's a criticism of Christianity. He says this. I think we have a quote up by him. says this. Far from us, say the Christians, be any man possessed of any culture, wisdom, or judgment. And this is in Roman society. Their aim is to only worthless and contemptible people. Idiots, slaves, poor women, and children, these are the only ones whom they manage to turn into believers. I would say in response to that, that's exactly the kind of people God wants to use. The ones society doesn't like. The ones society does not view as significant. 
And we hear these words so often. Are you called, brother? Do you have the anointing? What, what is your gifting? We hear these big, fanciful words that we feel like we have to be special to have or special to attain. I want to say that's so contrary to the gospel and God's will. That God likes to use whoever. Literally. It could be actually a noun, a person, a whoever. Whoever decides to follow him. So many people memorize John 3.16. But what about John 3.15? That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I think of that verse, and it doesn't say, whoever takes communion every week, whoever can get it right, whoever has the right job, whoever is like really good at not sinning, uh, hint, it's none of us. It's whoever. Last time I checked, that word means anybody. And so I like this concept with Esther that she is being willing to be used, but she's unlikely to be a part of God's will. And I want to say this in concluding this point that God is not waiting to use you. God is not waiting to have you be a part of what he wants to accomplish here in Albuquerque, here in your school, here in this city. Now, I don't know about you, but I hate waiting. Shout out to the DMV Express. It's like 20 more bucks, but you don't have to wait in a long line. I hate waiting. I'm not a waiter. God isn't either. God is in the business of using you right now where you're at. Doesn't matter what you want to dream to do. That's great. That's amazing. If you have these aspirations, seek those things out. Go after that job. But you don't have to wait for him to use you. Yeah. One day when you have a title, one day when you have respect, he's wanting to use you right now in the midst of where you're at. Yeah. And you may think, Nick, if you only knew the way people talk about me at work, if you only knew how good my grades are, if you only knew how well I've been performing my job, it's not been great, I'm the least likely. Now I'd say, my friend, you being the least likely makes you the most likely. You being the least likely in society's eyes makes God even more willing to use you, makes you even more likely to be a part of his plan. So it's this, it's being the unlikely candidate. And this is something else Esther faces. She faces the consistent criticism, the consistent criticism. If you can, jump with me to Esther 3, chapter 3, verse 1. It's one page over. We're going to jump right all over this because reading all of it is a lot. After these events, catching up on it, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadathiah. I do not know how to read that, and I just made that up. The Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. So this guy, he's a super wealthy dude, just becomes really important, like the king's right-hand man. Nothing too crazy about it. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. For the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai, this is Esther's uncle, this is Esther's cousin, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. When Haman saw that Mordecai, verse 5, would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, that they're Jews, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. This guy's a crazy person. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Could you imagine like somebody cuts you off in traffic and you say, well, I'm just going to annihilate your entire history. That is psycho. That's pretty much what this guy's doing. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. 
Their customs are different from those of all other people. And here we're reading how unlikely the Jews are. This is how they were viewed by their society at the time. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. And then we read on that the king agrees to this, that he's just this pushover. He agrees to what Haman's saying, saying, yeah, you don't like this guy, and we're going to get some money from this. Let's just wipe out this entire race of people. Insane, just because somebody didn't bow down to him. And I think it's so fascinating that a part of God's purpose, no matter how much you're on the will of God, no, no matter how much you're obedient to Christ, no matter how much you're faithful as a Christian or follower of Jesus, you will never be spared by man's wrath. That man's wrath, it will touch everybody. That no matter background, no matter belief, everybody faces the wrath of people. I think of Jesus' words, that the rain, blessing, it falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. That God doesn't pick and choose necessarily who suffers and who doesn't. Some of us suffer at the hands of different things, but we all suffer all the same. And I think a part of this plan, it's so fascinating that so often we can quickly go through something. We can quickly, quickly be talked to a specific way. We can quickly experience some sort of suffering. And our immediate thought is just human to think, what could I have done wrong to get this? What could I have done wrong to deserve this? I must, must be wrong with God. I must, I must have messed up somewhere along the way. When so often, the truth is, things happen to all of us. That good things happen to bad people, and bad things happen to good people. Now, there's not much we can do about that. And so often this comes in the form, maybe you're not facing a giant life crisis right now. Maybe you're not going through something very intense, but it may come in the form of this consistent criticism. Now, I find there's two things that often push us away from following Jesus, that push a follower away from Christ. It's circumstances, it's things being difficult, and it's criticism. It, it's, they can't bear the weight of carrying the responsibility of because they follow Jesus, because they want to be associated with him, they're going to be criticized for it. That so often it's, it's hard for us as relational people to deal with the weight of others' words. It's not easy. But what do you do in the midst of that? What do you do when you're criticized day after day? When you're outspoken, you're not a jerk about it, but you're outspoken about where you stand, where you draw your line in the sand when it comes to following Jesus. And you face this consistent criticism, but you want to remain faithful to Jesus. And here's another thing. Criticism doesn't always come from the outside. A lot of the time it comes from here. A lot of time, the, the criticism we face is this self-talk and these lies we put on our head. So often the criticism we face, it was one word somebody said to you, but that word is echoed in your mind for 10, 12, 5 years. And the criticism you face every day, you say, Nick, it's not that people are mean to me at work. Everyone loves me, at least I think so. It's the criticism I tell myself every day. It's this consistent criticism I can't overcome. So I find it so fascinating that when we encounter trials, when we encounter difficult moments, it should be understood that this is a part 
of the calling a lot of the time. A lot of the time, the criticism you face is a part of the calling. That here, Mordecai, truly, this man, he's doing nothing wrong, but he is at the receiving end of something so brutal of his entire people being wiped out. His entire people being wiped out because he decided to stand for the right thing. Following Jesus in the midst of that is not easy, my friends. Following God in the midst of that is not by any means an easy task. But if you want to follow God's call on your life, if you want to be a part of what Jesus desires for you on this side of heaven, you have to know that that's a part of the deal. That we're going to face criticism, that you're going to face these negative words you speak over yourself. And I find so often that this criticism is accompanied by circumstance. And it's not necessarily let's tackle, you know, let's tackle how we don't deal with criticism or how we should deal with criticism. I think so often it has to do with the circumstances. And so for our last point from learning from Esther's life, it's this, the unchangeable circumstances, the unchangeable circumstances. That the criticism you face, that the things you're going through isn't necessarily, okay, now I'm going to just quit my job. Now I'm going to stop just talking to these people. Now I'm going to just change everything. A lot of times things are unchangeable. You face criticism regardless in an unchangeable circumstance. I believe the way you face it is how we perceive and how we look through our circumstance. How are you viewing your circumstance? Read with me in verse 4. And we'll have the band come back up. Verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. So he's just frustrated. Have you ever been so frustrated, you just want to break something? You just want to rip your hair out? Like you're literally so upset? This is what Mordecai is doing. In response to this criticism, in response to such unintelligible evil, says this in verse 5, Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and he ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. Jump down to verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, Mordecai he sent back this answer. This is, this is so crucial what he tells her. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position, this part's so good, for such a time as this. For such a time as this. Mordecai informs Esther, who's probably living up in the palace, eating a bunch of quiche, kicking it. Hey, somebody's trying to wipe out everything we know. Somebody's trying to literally kill all of your family, kill everybody I know, and uh, we don't know what to do. You, you have to be the one to say something to the king. And I think in this moment, how, how Esther in, in this point in time probably wishes that she was literally anybody else but herself in this moment. That she wishes that her circumstances could be anything different than what she's facing. But the fact of the matter is, is that she's in a circumstance. It's unchangeable. And it's up to her to be a part of what God's calling her to do. 
to go before the king and request at danger of losing her life. This king threw out his previous queen for just not showing up. She's probably nervous about that, nervous about requesting before the king, hey, I, I heard this law got put into degree. I heard this happened. Can we change, can we do something about them? But because of her position, because of her circumstances, there's nobody else to do it but her. And Mordecai says these words, they're so fascinating. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. I just read that verse and it, and I can't help but replace what he's saying with a different context of where we're at, where you and I may be at. I think, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the city of Albuquerque will arise from another place. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for your parents will arise from another place. And don't get me wrong, Mordecai's not prophesying into each and every one of our lives. But this book speaks to us in the sense of how God wants to take part in your life. And how God wants to transform you through a process and be a part of how he may be bringing deliverance to others. He says, you know, Esther, it's for such a time as this, girl. (laughs) Someone's got to do it, and I think you're the one. She's hesitant, but he he prefaces it with that. If, If you don't, somebody will. And collected young adults, I want to tell you tonight, if you don't, somebody will. If you don't talk to the person who sits by themselves at the back of the class, everybody makes fun of them, everybody picks on them, they don't really get along with anybody. If you, if you don't rise up and stand for others, somebody will. If, if you don't make a decision to change your friends because they're altering your future in a way that you don't want to go down and a path you don't want to pursue, if you don't, somebody will. If you don't be a part of what is God wanting to do in your life, somebody will. The way God wants to bring deliverance in your circumstances, if you don't do something, God's faithful. Us being able to be a part of what he's wanting, he doesn't need us, he wants us to be a part of it. He'll choose somebody else, he'll do something else, he'll make it work, he'll make something happen. But for all we know, he wants to use us right now where we're at, and we're the best candidate in his eyes. And I think so often, Sometimes I believe God wants to accomplish something through us and want to accomplish something within us. That you're going through this circumstance right now, your life, if we are honest, you say, man, Nick, God is good, but my life sucks. If we were to sit down and have coffee and we were to be honest, probably tell me that. But I want to ask you, what are you doing in the midst of these circumstances? They can't change. It's where you're at. Sorry, but it's where you're at. It's what has to happen. And I think of this one moment in my life. I was, I believe, 18 or 19. And I was working this job, and I had all these dreams. I had all these aspirations. I I felt like I was being muted. I felt like the way my life was going was by no means the way I wanted to. I was working this job. I really didn't care for it. I, I had all these dreams and aspirations, and I couldn't afford it. I didn't know what I was doing. So what I started to do, I said, okay, if God's not going to give me a job, I'm just going to go start applying for a bunch and see what happens. I'm going to go here and there. 
sorry, interview after interview after interview. They go great. Just something feels off about it. And uh, this one job I interview for, I'm back at my other job, and I get the email saying I'm rejected, right? You ever, you ever get that email or that letter and the first line's rejected? Didn't get in. Credentials didn't match. I just remember feeling so crushed. I remember saying, God, wh- where am I supposed to go from here? What? So this is it. This is what I'm doing. This isn't my dream. This isn't what I feel like you called me to. And I remember my, my youth pastor at the time, Cody, walking up to me. And man, it was just such a God moment. It's such a God moment. I'm here and I'm, I'm working this job and he, he shows up to the place and he tells me, Nick, I've had this thought. It's, it's maybe that seasons of rejection. I, and get this, I haven't told him anything. He just walks up to me and tells me this. This is the kind of guy he is. He says, Nick, maybe seasons of rejection are actually seasons of rescue. Seasons of rejection are actually seasons of rescue. And I think for you and I, and so many of us in this room, that God may not want to deliver you from a circumstance. He may not want to take you out of it because he wants to deliver something through you. That he wants to bring something out of you that you may transform people's life, that you may be a part of people's testimony. It's like, hey, yes, this guy I bust tables with, he wouldn't leave me alone and he kept talking to me about my life and he actually cared about me. And so we had a conversation and he brought me to Jesus and everything would be different. And for all we know, it's, because this person stayed faithful to the circumstance. So I wanna ask you, are you staying faithful to this circumstance? It's hard, it's really difficult staying faithful to this circumstance. But it's, it's when where you are is not where you want to be. But it's where God wants to use you, no matter what. I don't even care, I don't even care if you've been unfaithful in some areas, God still wants to use you, he still wants to redeem you, he still wants to reconcile you. He's not done with you yet. If you're breathing and standing up straight, he is not done with you yet. So maybe the circumstance you're in, you need to be faithful to. Maybe you and I need a moment to realize the offer letters that got rejected, the thing that didn't feel right, that has put us in the place we're in, being all the way out here in Albuquerque, away from our family, maybe rescue in the midst of rejection. I want to pray for us. And... um, closes out for tonight. I just want to encourage you with that, my friends. That so often we we ask for different circumstances. We ask for a different place when God just wants to use us in the midst of the circumstance we're in. And we may be the people to do it. That's a really convicting idea to think about. I think of Mordecai's words. Maybe you've been put in this position for such a time as this. Let's pray. Lord, you're so good to us. God, I I thank you for just these people. Lord, so often we can look to others to make something happen. We can look to others to change a circumstance, to be a part of something because we don't think we're good enough, that we think we're unlikely. But Lord, that makes us perfectly likely. So I pray for my friends tonight, those of us who feel like we're in a dead-end job, those of us who feel that question lingering, and so this is it. 
God, that, that you may just show up in such a special way in our lives, that surprises us. Now, Lord, I pray for those of my friends in this room that have been faithful to you, that have been faithful, that have been faithful where they've been. They've been there for a long time, but they've been faithful and they see you. But Lord, you may just allow them to taste on some of that fruit, on some of that faithfulness, that they may get a hint of how much them being in the circumstance they are in influences people. Lord, I, I just request that on behalf of my friends because, Lord, it can be so hard sometimes. It can be so difficult, Jesus, to stay faithful in a circumstance despite criticism, despite being unlikely, Lord. So I pray for just some gratitude. Pray for something to just seem like it was all worthwhile, Lord. Don't know what that is or who that's for, but I pray that, Jesus. Pray for my friends in this room, God, that you just may be with them this week. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing, what you're doing behind the scenes. Put this all in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys. Let's work.